Welcome to Tape Heads, a very special holiday episode of Tape Heads. I'm Sean. And I'm Lindsay. Tape Heads is the podcast where we watch a VHS tape from either my collection or Lindsay's collection. We watch it, and then we talk about it. For this episode, we watched the Christmas classic, Die Hard, starring Bruce Willis, Alan Rickman, Bonnie Bedelia, and Alexander Gudinoff. As we've seen before on Tape Heads, it's violence that brings the family together. Yes, this is the second consecutive Christmas Tape Heads where it stars a Planet Hollywood founder, (laughs) one of the big three. Uh, We haven't gotten the sly on this podcast, but we will, we will. And there is a big connection between the two movies that we picked because Arnold Schwarzenegger was the original actor that they were considering for this role. That's right. If you go back to our Commando episode, way back in episode two, we learned that Die Hard was originally supposed to be a sequel to Commando, and thank God that did not happen, because (laughs) this film is such a classic to me. I think it holds a special place in both our hearts, am I right? The reasons for this are many, and I think that the Christmas setting uh, is just part of that. It's a very simple idea executed perfectly. Wonderful ensemble cast. Great ensemble cast. Bruce Willis has never been better. Alan Rickman has never been better in my opinion. It's just a wonderful film and it's one that I revisit this time of year every year and like all great Christmas movies uh, I could watch it any time of year. So Sean you got two ads on this tape. The first one was The Fly 2. Did you have you seen that? Oh, yeah, yeah, I actually have. Um, This is the sequel to the remake of The Fly, (laughs) the classic David Cronenberg, uh, Jeff Goldblum, Gina Davis joint. The sequel I actually don't remember very well. This is a really creepy ad. All it is is... um, It's really gross. It's like a woman giving birth... Uh, it's it's basically, I mean, not in that graphic of detail. It, all you see is just a heartbeat monitor while a woman is giving birth to a disgusting fly baby. <laughs> yeah. Which is not something I remember being in the movie. I don't know. It's one of those sequels that Fox just rushed out because the first was such a big hit. I think Eric Stoltz is the son of the fly, and there's just, like, a lot of gross uh, fly makeup, but without, like, the emotional complexity of the first one and then our second ad was a fish called wanda which is a movie i really love that's one of your favorites isn't it i don't know if it's a favorite but it's definitely one that i like to revisit from time to time one of the best casts of any comedy i think oh, i mean yeah. john cleese kevin klein i love kevin klein in that disappointed movie. <laughs> uh michael palin jamie yes. lee curtis like it's like it's a, a lot of at least a few monty python people are in that one mm-hmm. only those two ads so i think you've still got quite a lead on me in our unofficial war of the trailers yeah i'm just thinking of these two ads and then thinking of die hard and neither I mean, I guess A Fish Called Wanda can kind of match up with Die Hard. It's it's a sort of comedic action movie, but why The Fly 2? I guess they just needed people to see it so they could sell tapes. Really, the only connection is that they're both Fox films. I, I, I mean, I, I, when you see a movie in the theater, they're all different studios advertising to you, but when it's on video, it's just that studio's film, so... I think that they're a little less picky. They'll just throw the fly, too, on there. 
Oh, you know, I remember one detail I remember about the fly too is there's this gross dog monster. And it's like, <laughs> it's so sad because it just, you just want to put it out of its misery. Aww. And it's, it's really disheartening. And I think that movie, I feel like, is just obsessed with creating these hideous monsters that that all they want is the sweet release of death and it is not granted to them which oh. is not which is not a fun idea for a sci-fi movie oh god uh yeah probably don't watch the play too so our friend bruce willis plays um a personal w- friend personal for a friend of the show bruce willis <laughs> plays a kind of wise cracking new york cop john mclean who's visiting his wife his estranged wife for Christmas at her company's office holiday party. And while he's there, the building is taken over by terrorists led by Hans Gruber, played by Alan Rickman. And using his cunning, he's able to break off from the pack as the hostages are being rounded up. And one by one, he's able to pick them off. There's a lot of murder in this movie. There's a lot of very festive murder in this movie. And very red Christmassy blood. Yes, it's amazing. There's so many elements in this movie that make it a classic in my mind, from John DeBont's cinematography, which was completely ruined by the VHS presentation of this movie. Seeing it in full frame uh, cropped did not do it any favors. Aww. Everybody is just cast perfectly. Michael Keeman's score, the direction, all of these, the crazy stunts and the pyrotechnics. It's just a perfect action movie and it just flies by. It is near perfect. It's near perfect. Well, here's the thing. Here's the thing. It's my favorite action film. And due to the fact that there are no action films better than this in my mind, (laughs) then it is by definition the perfect action movie. It is really good, and it is my favorite action movie, too. John McClane isn't a superhero. Like, they really try to emphasize all of his injuries. He's limping around. He's a human being. He doesn't have any superpowers. And he's just taking this on as he can. And it makes him really relatable. It makes the role that much more fun. And that's why it's kind of cool that he was doing this instead of Schwarzenegger. Because Schwarzenegger is just super built. He's a bodybuilder. Whereas Bruce Willis had a more realistic body and that sort of thing, too. And at this time, he was best known for moonlighting. I mean, he would shoot that show during the day, and then he would go over to shoot Die Hard at night. So... They definitely cast him more for his personality than his physique. He's mm-hmm. uh, he's convincingly built, yeah. but he's not Schwarzenegger crazy steroid built. I'm just imagining this with Schwarzenegger in it, and it feels so campy. I think that this and also Lethal Weapon, I put those two films together in my mind because they were 87 and 88. I think at this time we're kind of getting into like a reaction to movies like Commando and uh, Rambo and things like that where the pendulum is kind of swinging the other way. I think License to Kill is part of this movement too where we want more realistic action. We Mm -hmm. want kind of we want to think that there's some stakes to all this and we want to see our hero kind of beat up and dirty and limping around by the end of the movie yeah and you said that this you feel that this informed bond even the bond films that came after yes i mean i think that most directly it had a huge impact on license to kill robert davi of course uh is in this as agent actually both of the agent johnsons were uh were in license to kill 
and Michael Kamen did the music for that as well. So I think it had a huge influence on movies that came after this. There was even a whole subgenre of movies that were called, you know, Die Hard in a Blank. Like, Speed is Die Hard on a Bus. Air Force One is Die Hard on Air Force One. I mean, it's it's really a revolutionary movie. What I was saying to Lindsay is this is a kind of action thriller that you don't really see much in that it's so simple. It's not a convoluted plot. You know, there's not a whole lot that really transpires. I mean, you have the subplot with the police and Mm -hmm. the press responding to this hostage crisis. But it keeps it very tight. It does not feel like a two-hour, ten-minute movie. Um, It just goes by so quickly. And, yeah, I guess it's just going to be a big diehard love fest because I really have nothing critical to say. One of the things that's interesting about it, too, is it doesn't have any of those fantasy elements that so many action films have now where people are just, like, flying across the screen when they jump. Uh, But it's also not that hyper-realism like you see in films like... I mean, it's not really an action movie, but it feels like The Departed, where it really brings you down. It still manages to be really fun and up, even though there's so much violence. And it's interesting because the role wasn't just offered to Arnold Schwarzenegger, it was also offered to Frank Sinatra due to a weird, who was then in his 70s, due to a weird contractual obligation from a movie in the 60s called The Detective. Can you imagine if he said yes? I mean, they're hoping he would say no, but imagine if a 70-year-old Frank Sinatra was shuffling through Die Hard. Well, they, they would have just canceled production. Yeah. And they also um, offered it to Sylvester Stallone, Don Johnson, Harrison Ford. Of those, I think only maybe it would have worked with Harrison Ford because yeah. he has that charisma. But I am so glad it ended up with Bruce Willis. Like, oh, what God. a career-defining role this is. He's so chatty. He's always talking to himself. He's always mm-hmm. letting you into what he's feeling, but never in a way that hits you over the head with it. It's believable yeah. when he's talking to himself. Let's go out to the coast, get together, <laughs> have a few laughs. Can we talk about the things in this movie that aren't perfect, though? Okay. Because it's not I'll, perfect. I'll see that there are some imperfections in this movie. Like the shirt. His shirt changes color partway through the film, which that's pretty easy to keep consistent like how do they switch from white to green there's no explanation that i can find yeah. for why that is i give this criticism but i never noticed until sean pointed it out to me while we were watching yeah because I... you're so involved with the story I, it wasn't until the 10th or 11th time i saw this movie <laughs> that i noticed that because you're so involved you don't notice that his white uh wife beater switches to a green wife beater halfway yeah. through and, and when it's... he comes out of the vent uh-huh. I feel like the explanation that I find most commonly online is, oh, his shirt got dirty in the vent. It's but It's not dirty. It's so it's... purely like hunter green or like, what would you yeah. call that shade of green? Like Hunter olive- green. Yeah. I'm, I'm impressed. That, that is a very specific color. <laughs> <laughs> I know my color palette from Die Hard. But I don't understand why that happens. I mean, that kind of just makes it more interesting to me. Like that adds yeah. to the lore of it. I mean, it's funny because I I bring it up as a criticism, but I never noticed because I guess I was always so involved with the movie, even though I watch it like every year. I think the fact that there's such a big conversation over the color of Bruce Willis's shirt changing, I think that's testament to how beloved this movie is. That something like that is looked at as like the one flaw of this movie is that a a shirt changes color. It's a continuity error that has long beguiled fans of this movie. All right, here's another flaw, though. I'll throw another one at you. Okay, I'm ready. 
At the end of the movie, when he's beaten, broken, bleeding, he limps off to the limo instead of getting in one of the mini ambulances. Yeah, that that is a little strange. And no one stops him. No police officers go, hey, could you give us an account of what happened really quick? Or no one's going, do you need a blood transfusion? Yeah, I mean, his feet are still filled with glass. He's, he's also shot. Yeah, it was a flesh wound, but he was shot. I don't know. You know, it's funny because I always just go with it because Let It Snow comes on. He gets in the back <laughs> of the limo. And I mean, the movie is about him reconciling with his wife and... That goal is achieved, and I don't think it would play quite as well in in an ambulance, so that does kind of break with the realism. You could always say that the limo is driving them to the ambulance to get an immediate blood transfusion. Yeah, I still feel like the... I mean, this is one of those leaps that you have to make for the film, because they want... They want him to drive off in the limo that he came into the scene on, right? Mm-hmm. And it's just so much more romantic imagining him with his wife in the back going home to their kids, even though he's bleeding out. If I was forced to point out a flaw in this movie, and this is how nitpicky I have to get to find anything. I, again, I think this is a perfect movie. <laughs> but if Hans Gruber is pointing a gun at my head and I say that I have to find a flaw with Die Hard... I would say there's a moment when the SWAT team shows up and they're charging the building and we know that they're going into an ambush, that there's no way these SWAT guys are going to be able to handle this. And one of these supposedly really tough SWAT guys comes up to a rose bush and he goes, ooh, ow, as he gets pricked <laughs> by it. And I know it's like, it's there for a laugh. I we're forgot su- about that. We're supposed to, I mean, I, I know what it's trying to do. It's trying to say like, oh, look how lame these guys are. But I think it kind of softens what otherwise, you know, we're yeah. supposed to believe that these guys are fully trained and ready to go into the situation. Because it makes the movie scarier if they cut that out and you're not thinking, yeah. huh, those stupid guys they walk through rose bushes you know other diehard fans love that moment i i might be in the minority on this but i that's one yeah. it's like two seconds of the movie that i i, I could have snipped down probably one of my favorite moments is when one of the terrorists is sitting there waiting to ambush the swat guys and he's just eating candy bars now that's a moment of comedy that i like like the moments of comedy are sprinkled throughout most of it is is john mcclain's dialogue even Alan Rickman, who, you know, is this totally psychopathic villain, this German mastermind, even he has all these moments for humor, mm-hmm. especially when he's doing his American accent. And, it, I mean, it's it's not a, a grim movie. I feel like if yeah. this was, I mean, inevitably this will be remade. Um, and when they do, they're going to screw it up in a lot of different ways. But the first way they'll screw it up is by getting the comedy aspect of it wrong. Yeah, I wonder, because they'll either go too far and make it campy and kind of a parody of itself, or they'll try to go crazy gritty with it. They'll just take all the fun out of it. Yeah. But I think you're talking about, like, balancing the grimness of the movie, and so it's not too grim. It still makes it something that's fun to watch. And I was thinking of all the violence in the film... John McClane, our hero, he kills a lot of people. And I know they're terrorists, but still killing people. And one of the things that I kind of realized that makes you like him a little more is that that first time he kills one of them, it, it kind of feels unintentional. And when they go down the stairs yeah. and he breaks his neck. They're, they're wrestling and they fall down the stairs and the, and the terrorist's neck is broken. And then 
you, you kind of see Bruce Willis's face and he looks a little shocked. Yeah, he's not just taking him out willy-nilly. I mean, I, I think that he becomes a little cold-blooded in the yeah. sequels. But I find that he's very much, I mean, he's like a wounded animal in this. And he's just, he's killing, like, in self-defense in every one of these cases. And it makes you like him a little more because he's not just jumping in there and taking them all out with no thought. In talking with the director, John McTiernan, about his character, Bruce Willis decided that he'd play John McClane as a guy who doesn't really like himself but at the end of the day is doing his best in this impossible situation. And I think that's the perfect description of this character. Mm-hmm. And something that they sort of lost, they lose sight of in the sequels. He becomes increasingly immortal and godlike with yeah. each sequel. And I, and I like many of the sequels, but I feel like this movie, he, his character is just so refreshing after seeing so many of these invincible Schwarzenegger commando types Mm -hmm. where there's weight to this and like when he runs on glass like he's I mean that's a huge moment for the film whereas that might not even be in the frame if Schwarzenegger did it you know or if he did it he'd run through and he'd just like be limping a little bit but not really that injured whereas you see Bruce Willis dragging himself along the ground with blood pouring out of his feet and it's so interesting that that running on the glass sequence is such an iconic part of this movie you don't actually see him running across it's entirely it's done so economically with Jan DeBont cinematography where you see him looking at the glass the camera whips down to his bare feet the flashbang goes off and when it's when the light disappears he's just gone and the next time you see him and his feet are in such mangled shape it's like that's all you need to know we really had to go back and check because I could have sworn that he does run through the glass. Yeah, I mean, it's it's done so well. I mean, it's kind of like Psycho. You never actually see anyone get stabbed. But in that, like in that shower sequence, mm-hmm. you don't actually see Janet Lee get stabbed. But the impression of it is so... You feel the violence so much more when it's suggested yeah. like that. Kind of speaking of how they put things together in a very smart way the the film doesn't spend a lot of time telling you about the characters or what's going on it just kind of shows you and that's one thing that's really nice that i like about it like the opening sequence of the film you see john mcclain carrying this giant teddy bear and it tells you okay he probably has kids and it's christmas time and you hear music and stuff and this huge oversized teddy bear And then when you see the wife, you realize that he's trying to make up for not being there, for being in kind of absent father and husband. And it it does it so well because you just understand it from what you see on the screen instead of having to be told it outright. Yeah, it's a story that's told so economically and so uh, succinctly. The very first scene of the movie is setting up that famous glass run when John McClane is on the plane and the guy sitting next to him says that he should take off his shoes and socks when he gets to where he's going so he can conquer his fear of flight by making fists with his toes and that's the reason he's barefoot for this entire movie. And just There's so many things like that, so many little things that are set up Bonnie Bedelia putting the framed picture down for later because she's on an angry call with John. Like, we, yeah. they're only on screen together as a couple, Bruce Willis and Bonnie Bedelia, for like five minutes of the movie, but mm-hmm. you have such a strong idea, like you said with the teddy bear, you have such a strong idea of what their marriage is like. 
Alan Rickman, who'd mostly done sort of BBC stuff and a lot of Shakespeare, this is kind of his big breakout role, and he really owns it as this character, Hans Gruber. He's such a memorable villain. I feel like all the sequels after this are trying to top Hans Gruber and never quite do. I do love him as a villain. I guess my only complaint was I've never quite bought his accent. As a German? As a German or as an American. Oh, really? I really like his American accent. It, I mean, it feels like he's faking it, which I guess it's supposed to. Well, I think it's just because we've spent the whole movie with him. They're That's really, true. They're really looking for an opportunity to put Bruce Willis and Alan Rickman in a scene together before yeah. their big face-off at the end. I don't know. I really like his... It's not 100%, but it works for the scene. It works for the scene. Like, it's it's enough that you could see that McLean might believe that he's American. You should be on TV with that accent. <laughs> <laughs> and all of the henchmen under him are so memorable. Mm-hmm. Uh, Carl, uh, the long, blonde-haired one, and his brother, who's the first to die... Theo, the tech specialist, the only American. Well, actually, there's a couple Americans on the crew. Al Leong from uh, Big Trouble in Little China. Oh, yeah. And Lethal Weapon. He's our our villain that's eating the candy bars. Oh, yeah. He's eating those crunch bars. Again, it speaks to the quality of this movie that there's so many little villain roles, like so many throwaway roles, and they're all just so memorable and so interesting. Even when they have... Nothing really to say except some grammatically incorrect German lines. (laughs) I do love when we were looking through trivia for this, learning that they made the villains just generally European for the German version of the film. Yeah, that's funny to me too. (laughs) And then you've got these great subplots with the police reaction to this, led by Reginald Vell Johnson, who's from Family Matters, who's amazing as Sergeant Al Powell. He's fantastic in this, yeah. He's a lot of fun. His camaraderie with Bruce Willis is so great, and yet they don't share the screen together until the very end. Yeah. It's, It's so believable, it's so great. But, you know, they had so much chemistry that they brought him back for the sequel, which is really great. In a tiny cameo, but he's still in it. Yeah, he's still there. He's there. He got to contribute. He's eating Twinkies. The buddies get a little out of control in the sequels. I'm okay with Samuel L. Jackson. I think he's fine. I'm even okay with Justin Long, but in the fifth movie, which shall not be named... I haven't seen it. I've only seen the just, four. It never happened. It, the fifth movie never happened. I but, guess it's the same as Indiana Jones. Yeah. If there's a beloved action hero, like, say, Indiana Jones or John McClane, don't introduce a son character. And the thing is, it was funny because the Justin Long character was kind of sort of filling that role a little bit, but he it still managed to be a really fun movie. Yeah, I like Live Free or Die Hard. Um, I loved how it knew that it had to up the ante that much more. Like, each of these films tries to make the action even crazier because they know they're building on what's happened before. And so the, for the fourth one, they're just like, oh, screw it, we're going to put Willis on a jet hanging onto the wing yeah and that stuff you know it gets a little out of control in terms of the stunts and it relies more heavily on cgi but going back to like the buddies i think it really works when the buddy isn't like competing for action screen time yeah like justin long serves a purpose like he's the tech guy like he's not really you know he's not really like Mm -hmm. stealing action sequences yeah 
you know, and Samuel Jackson again works because he's not really an action hero. He's just like this guy who happens to be caught up in this situation. That's true. Um, what's his name at the airport? Marv in the second movie. <laughs> <laughs> that weird guy. Like he kind of works too because he's he's facilitating uh, the plot. But um, that fifth movie, oh my god. I think it's because you want your action hero to be the hero. You don't want him to be partially replaced by this other character that you don't care about because the franchise isn't built on this other random character. Yeah, the the fifth movie, um, again, never see this movie, but they bring in Jay Courtney, who's just in everything now, I don't know why, uh, to play the son of Bruce Willis. And granted, there's a physical resemblance, but... It's such a miscalculation. I mean, not only is that just a terrible movie in every regard, but the Sun character is the driving force of all this action, and he's in all these shootouts, and he's we're to believe that he's John's equal or he's better, even. And it, that just ruins it for me, because it's like we're here to see John McClane. Who is Jay Courtney? What's he been in? Like, I can picture his face, but... Uh... Oh, he's like in the Divergent movies, and he was in the new Terminator movie. I think he's got a ton of things in the works now. I don't know if it's necessarily entirely his fault. A lot of it is just the the writing. But again, it's a lot like the fourth Indiana Jones movie where it's like, yeah, let's bring in a younger guy to kind of replace this guy that nobody cares about. <laughs> Ugh, I didn't want to get started talking about the fifth movie because it's just going to make me angry. <laughs> I do love the second film. Die Hard 2 is a solid movie. I, I think, think it's it, fine. Yeah. It's, still, it's still Christmassy. You get to see some snow. Oh, yeah. And, the, and his wife is still in it. She's not in any of them after the second movie, right? To the detriment of the movies. Like, I think that their relationship is kind of the anchor of the first two movies. And without that, it gets a little... Like, I know Die Hard with a Vengeance has its big mm -hmm. fans. Um, I like it pretty well. I, I like it about as well as the fourth movie. But I feel like you, you really lose a lot when... Holly isn't involved. It's interesting too because I think she helps soften his character and it gives sort of understandable reason for like all of the violence that he has to commit because a lot of it is to protect her and to kind of save his family sort of thing. I think that the fourth movie recovers that a little bit by introducing his daughter. Like, I, this might sound hypocritical because I was just railing against the son character, but the, the, I think Mary Elizabeth Winstead as his daughter works because she's just sort of an every person. She's not like an action hero. Like She doesn't yeah. come out like shooting guns in the air and screaming. Like, she's she really is a believable daughter. And I think that that's kind of why I give the edge to the fourth movie. I know that some people don't like it because it's PG-13 or whatever. I, I think that a little bit of that is restored, but I think that the marriage is really what makes his character like the estranged marriage is what makes the character work another sort of buddy that he has in this there's all these great buddies in the original film Argyle his limousine driver yeah. he is such a cool character he's so much fun and it's nice because it like his limo reminds you that this is the late 80s and they, <laughs> they have it's super high tech with a car phone built in and he gets network TV I mean he spends the entire movie locked in the garage completely separate from the action really just just having fun yeah. like he's just sitting back there with a giant teddy bear drinking and talking yeah. on the car phone 
my boss thinks I'm on my way to Vegas. <laughs> that line always confused me. It's like, why would your boss think that? What's going to happen when he finds out that you're not in Vegas? Like, I've always kind of looked at the movie, thought about the movie through Argyle's eyes. Like, he's getting fired tomorrow. And also, that's not he... something that makes sense. Because if you think about it, he's there on his job. He's waiting for Bruce Willis. Like, yeah. he's being paid to be there. So that's a line that doesn't quite add up. Unless it's another job that he has. Because it's his Maybe. first day as a limo driver. Maybe. Yeah, you know, and it's so great having this character, John McClane, picked up by a limo because he's so uncomfortable with this lifestyle that he sits up front. And that, just like the teddy bear, gives you a strong idea of his character up front. Oh, that he's in a place where he feels very out of place. And he ends up in this really fancy skyscraper that has a touch screen. (laughs) Boop! Oh, yeah. Touchscreen directory that shows a really awful map to where he can find his wife. Another slight flaw with this movie. He has to go through all that, looking through the whole directory, finding that his wife is under her, is using her maiden name. Yeah. And then the guy running the desk says, oh, the 30th floor. Those They're the only people in the building. And it's kind of like, well, why did you just say even, that? Yeah. He would have just directed him to go to the elevator. Yeah. But again, we're we're making mountains out of molehills here. Another subplot that's going on in all of this is the press reaction. There's kind Ugh. of a a light uh, media satire. I think things like hard copy were sort of coming into vogue, like these this sort of tabloid journalism. And uh, William Atherton, who pretty much was only playing douchebags in movies at this point, because he's also in Ghostbusters as uh, the guy who's trying to shut them down. He, like, works for the EPA. The whole press side of this, this really has a negative spin on the media at large. And it's funny because it's still relevant. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, look at... I mean, we don't talk politics on the show, but there were the shootings in San Bernardino in Southern California, and the press were releasing private photos... Uh, from inside the shooter's home of family and friends. And it's like, you didn't have any of their consent to show it. It's irresponsible. You're putting them in danger. And in this film, they do the same thing for Bruce Willis and his wife. Yeah, absolutely. And the reporter directly endangers them by going to their house with the camera, like threatening to bring INS to the maid. (laughs) And... By interviewing the kids, that's what sets up this final conflict is that uh, now Hans Gruber knows that that not one but both parents are in the building. Exactly. And he also realizes that he has something that matters to Bruce Willis because until that point, Bruce Willis is just this guy that's bringing him down and killing his boys. But now he has something that he can use against him, which is his wife. And Bonnie Bedelia as the wife is so good throughout the movie. She's not just this hapless hostage. She's constantly, um, she's talking directly to him. She isn't afraid to make eye contact with him, even after he's killed uh, her boss, Takagi. But she's got this kind of strength and really sharp mind that you can see connects her to John McClane's character because you can really relate them to each other. Yeah, she has, like, this grace under pressure that's really believable. You know, she's not an action hero like her husband, but she's a hero in her own right Mm -hmm. in the way that she's able to... She steps up to the plate and is negotiating for 
you know, the hostages to be treated civilly during yeah. all of this. And he listens to her. He listens, yeah, he respects her, absolutely. Alan Rickman, yeah. Or Hans Gruber, excuse me. <laughs> I love how this movie kind of set Alan Rickman up as a bad guy to Americans, so he's just continually played the bad boy roles. Yeah. Including Snape and yeah. Harry Potter. I'm, yeah, you mentioned that. I think you're absolutely right that uh, his performance in this helped him land Snape later on. And, and among these hostages, by the way, we have a certain Harry Ellis, the sleazy, coke-snorting, oh, horrible person. I blocked him out of my mind. He's the closest the movie goes to having like a really over-the-top character. Like, this is the sleaziest person you've ever met. I mean, he's the kind of guy who... John and Takagi walk in on him doing blow at the desk. Which Takagi, so Takagi is the Japanese executive of this company. And he doesn't even bat an eye. Like, you can tell he's just like, he's just like, uh, Harry's doing blow again. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's part of just raising the stakes continually in this kind of, what otherwise could just be a stagnant hostage situation is... Ellis creates a problem for John by stepping up and claiming that they're old friends and trying mm-hmm. to negotiate him stepping down. But that just completely backfires. Well, and you can see he's just so arrogant and self-involved. I mean, he's essentially almost harassing John McClane's wife because he's interested in her. He's giving her gifts she doesn't want. He knows she's married. But then later, you know, when he's um, trying to negotiate some kind of deal with Hans Gruber, he is acting like he's best friends with John McClane, which is so two-faced. Yeah. And this is in complete contrast to Takagi, the executive, who who risks his life to try and make his employees safer because the terrorists are trying to call him out. They want to confront him and get the passcodes. And initially, Bonnie Bedelia, or excuse me, Holly Gennaro McLean, (laughs) tries to get Takagi to stay quiet and hide in the crowd, but he steps out knowing that he needs to face them. And that shows a great degree of bravery, unlike... Ellis. Humanizing these hostages is a nut, like one of just so many huge things that the movie does just effortlessly. They talk about a pregnant woman. Yeah. Crowd. You get us, and when you get a sense of these hostages as people, the stakes just rise exponentially. When especially it makes you see these terrorists as absolutely horrible pieces of filth knowing that their plan all along is to blow up the roof with all the hostages on it. Yeah, that always gets me that that's their plan. And again, had John McClane not been here, like they they would have succeeded and everyone would have just been blown up on the roof. That is so nuts to me. And on the other side of that, the the FBI's plan was to come in on the helicopter and it was okay if they lose 20% of the hostages. I think, didn't they say a full third they were okay with it? Yeah, they, I think they say 20%. Oh, okay. I might be wrong about that. But I'm making Robert the Davi, in my memory. Robert Davi showing us shades of Sanchez here from License <laughs> to Kill basically says that he's okay with shooting mo- like a good chunk of the hostages. So out of the frying pan into the fire with if whether you're dealing with the FBI or the terrorists and John McClane is the only one who's able to intervene in the situation by acting like firing, a, <laughs> firing a machine gun in the air acting like a crazy person cuz he's he's telling these people get down and 
it's funny because one of them there recognizes him and knows it's him, but she doesn't help. Oh, you're Holly's husband. Well, she helps. She says uh, they took her. They took her. Like he, yeah. She lets him know that because he's trying to find her on That's the roof. That's true. There. I guess she's panicking. But I, I was just thinking, why didn't she like listen to him saying you guys need to get downstairs and then tell the other hostages get downstairs because a man covered in blood and dirt with a big gun is going to be a threat or yeah. seem like a threat. The late 80s were a really tough time for pop music, because we saw a bit of in License to Kill. <laughs> but Die Hard, again, deftly dodges this. There's some, Mostly. There's some kind of primitive uh, early hip-hop in the limo, but all that's really fun and in Argyle's character. And it's diegetic, like it's part. It's coming out of this character's radio. Uh huh. It's it's not added into the soundtrack. Like there's no love theme to Die Hard when the credits roll up. Like Patti LaBelle isn't singing us out of this movie. <laughs> Sorry, License to Kill. It's true. By ending with Let It Snow, Let It Snow, it just is putting the perfect bow, if you will, on the Christmas <laughs> present that is Die Hard. And just the use of Beethoven yeah. using the Ninth Symphony. Something your mom objects to. Yeah, my mom <laughs> my mom doesn't like classical music used in, in films. Well, but, it's uh, funny because the composer that worked on this film was upset about it initially. Yeah, Michael Kamen, he... I mean, obviously, to a composer, Beethoven is sacred, and the 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 way that uh, John McTiernan, and the director, is able to convince him to include "Ode to Joy" was by saying, "Oh, it's an homage to Stanley Kubrick and Clockwork Orange," which uh, which is funny because I actually. I actually associate the Ninth Symphony more with Die Hard than I do with Clockwork Orange, but that's just me. That's just me. But yeah, the music in this I feel like isn't dated at all. Yeah, it helps give it a little bit of a timelessness. And even Michael Kamen's score, he keeps it so Christmassy at times with those sleigh bells. Like, it's so great. Because there are movies that are just very incidentally set at Christmas, and you could argue that that's what this is, but all this Christmas imagery, the huge tree in the lobby. The holiday party. The holiday party. Like, it just takes it to that next level. It would not be the same if it was just some random office party. Yeah. There's something about setting it at Christmas that is just so amazing. And the use of the Santa hat on the dead terrorist. Now I have a machine gun ho 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 in blood. Ho ho. ho. Is that blood or is it or is it like a it's hard to tell if that's done in blood or not. Oh, you know that it could, could be... be Sharpie from the mailroom booth that he grabs the tape from. He's also got Christmas tape. He tapes his Beretta to his back. Oh wait, I got the order out of I got that out that's of order. At, yeah, didn't that's I? at the end. But it, that could very well be where he gets it from. Um, no, probably not. There are too many floors. I remember when I was a kid seeing this, I thought that he'd somehow gotten a tube of lipstick and he wrote it on with that because <laughs> that's what it sort of looked like to me. Yeah, but... I kind of imagined. I always imagined it was blood, but maybe I'm just a little dark. I maybe that is what it is. It it seems a little too neat to be blood, but I'm not exactly sure. It must be a marker. But then where? I guess it, it is an office building. There could be markers all over the place. Well, that's the joy of Die Hard. It's just opening it up, talking about these things. All right, Sean, we're coming to an end here. And it's time to decide if you're going to buy it, rent it, or tape over it. Buy it. This is the greatest <laughs> Christmas story ever told. Buy it right now. I'm gonna say but, but I will say... You know, I know this is the VHS <laughs> podcast. Do yourself a favor. Watch this on 
Blu-ray or at least DVD because watching it on VHS with the sides of the frame cropped, you lose so much of this amazingly shot film. See it the way Jean de Bont and John McTiernan intended you to see it uh, with this amazing widescreen look, this Panavision look. Maybe just rent the VHS, but buy the DVD or Blu-ray. I'm also going to say buy it. This is a movie that I force people to watch when I realize that they hadn't seen it yet. It's also a movie I watch at least every other year. Um, I am going to say it is not a movie to watch if you're playing a drinking game. That is dangerous. <laughs> you sounds like you're coming from ex some uh, experience on this. Possibly. Possibly in college. Uh, so not recommended, but I do recommend the film. What was this drinking game? What were some of the things that you would drink to? Um... We cut this rule really quickly. I drink anytime someone uses a walkie-talkie. That's a recipe for uh, alcohol poisoning. <laughs> <laughs> and there's, what was it? Drink every time there's a lens flare. Yeah, and that's those anamorphic lenses that do mm -hmm. that. You lose a lot of that in the VHS. And then I'm trying to remember, there were a lot of different ones, and I can't remember what it was. It was a little complicated. There were too many rules. That's why we ended up cutting half of them. Every time someone dies? Yes. Okay. Not recommended. Not supported by tape heads. <laughs> For our first episode of 2016, we're going to have a guest on the show. Expert guest, you might say. A guestpert. Yeah, she's been mentioned on the show before in our Double Double Toil and Trouble episode. Sean talked about a family friend who had been on a Mary-Kate and Ashley cruise. And so we managed to get her over here and recorded It Takes Two. Chloe Shieldhouse is a very dear friend of mine. She's a writer and editor based in LA. Her writing has shown up everywhere in Uproxx, um, Bold Italic, Nylon. Of most interest is the piece <laughs> that she did for Vanity Fair about her experience on the Mary-Kate and Ashley cruise. We touched on it a little bit, like you mentioned, in the yeah. Double Double Toil and Trouble episode, but um, you need to hear it from uh, the Chloe's mouth because it's an amazing story. Uh, she's a very big Mary-Kate and Ashley fan, and uh, <laughs> I'm really looking forward yeah. to this episode. Oh, yeah. I'd like to thank Will Price for use of his song Mandatory Groove. You can listen to more of Will's music at soundcloud.com slash gargantulon. You can learn how to spell gargantulon on our website on our website on our website tapeheadspodcast.com you can email us at tapeheadspodcast at gmail.com and you can find us rate us review us on itunes that's it for tapeheads i've been sean i've been Lindsay. until next time 